0: Have you donated to Forward Radio? Have you donated to Forward Radio? Do you know that you could donate to Forward Radio? Forwardradio.org is waiting for you. Check it out! It's critical thinking for everyone! (laughs) And welcome to the show. So I'm here today with Rush Cosgrove. And uh, we're gonna talk about critical thinking and a lot of other things having to do with life. I've known Rush uh, since my beginning in the critical thinking community. And uh, I find him to be a really great thinker about some of the things that we do on the show. You are listening to Critical Thinking For Everyone. My name is Brian Barnes and Patty Payette is not here. So I'm just doing my own weird thing. And I thought I'd bring on my friend Rush. So Rush, welcome to the show, man.
1: Thanks. Uh, Great to great to be chatting with you. You know, we uh, we always uh, spark it off when we start talking critical thinking, so it'll be good to have (laughs) you know an extended conversation about it. But yeah, super stoked to be here.
0: Oh man, it is great to have you. And let me just recap a little bit. So, for me, um, I met Rush um, when you came uh, to the University of Louisville when you were doing research on your dissertation. Is that right, or was it? That's right. Okay. Yeah, uh
1: yeah, it was for my PhD, yeah.
0: Can you talk a little bit about what it was you were doing at U of L that had anything to do with critical thinking? Sure.
1: Uh well U of L at that point was like I wanna say like four or five years into the 10 year QEP uh, plan. So for those that right. don't know, quality enhancement plan, uh, universities uh, that are accredited, every 10 years have to have a plan for how they are improving uh, in, in, it can be really, op- you know, it's really open-ended, it can be really anything, but L had decided they want to improve teaching and learning for critical thinking across the curriculum, so not just in the sciences or in the social sciences, but uh, across the whole the whole spectrum, and even into like student support services, like um, like counseling uh, and uh, and LGBTQ services and and some other uh, sort of uh, supportive services. So, um, so that's their plan.
0: That's what Patty was doing, right? Exactly.
1: Yeah, that's what the Delphi Center uh, was kind of leading and, and running. Uh, I guess still is leading, uh, you know, various aspects of, of uh, the continuation of that plan. Sure. But, um, you know, so that's a, that's a huge goal. I mean, University of Louisville is a massive, massive organization. Uh, so then they had, you know, targeted um, uh, things that they were doing. And so anyway, what I was doing was studying, okay, so what is UofL doing? Uh, in order to improve teaching and learning for critical thinking, and um, ultimately, what impact can I see uh, actually happening in terms of teaching and learning for critical thinking? So uh, I was studying, you know, yeah, what what are the plans, what are teachers taking away from those activities, and, and what are teachers then implementing in their classrooms, and then what are students actually taking from those classroom experiences?
0: Right on, right on. And so um, you interviewed me as part of that research that you were doing, and then you helped me connect with the Foundation for Critical Thinking where you were also affiliated at the time. Are you able to give us a little bit like a thumbnail sketch of kind of, how would you characterize your background in critical thinking? Because you are one of the few people I know who actually has a bona fide PhD in critical thinking. There aren't many of those out, because there aren't any critical thinking programs at the doctoral level that are uh, what you would expect, I guess, like they're not the kind of thing that you would see normally in a, um, in a graduate program of some content. Uh, sure. So, yeah, so you did a different kind of path to that, and you also have an extensive background before that in critical thinking. I don't want to speak for you. Can you can you characterize some of that for our listeners? You're a you're a person of note in this area. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure.
1: Uh, well, I mean, first, just like serendipity, um, the the way that I actually found you, Barnes. I, I believe we've shared this, but um, I I had a roommate uh, who was taking one of your business, your uh, critical thinking for ethics classes. And uh, and and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm doing this study. And he was like, well, you should talk with my you should talk with my my professor, Brian Barnes. And I was just like, OK, well, I was in my like participant selection phase and I was still looking for more more folks. And so I was like, all right, you know, sounds sounds good. Fine. You know, like this random, uh, you know, guy that I don't know in my in my uh, in my apartment. But um, sure. <laughs> um, and, and so I reached out and, you know, we hit it off. Um uh, so it's just funny how how these connections go but um definitely yeah uh, I started critical thinking at a young age. Um, i I think uh, a lot of folks know that uh, Dr. Linda Elder actually is my is my mother okay. uh, uh, and so um, i I started studying critical thinking from a really young age like about eight wow. um, and like I can remember you know just Uh, just being taught the elements of thought, the intellectual standards and the intellectual traits uh, were kind of the foundation of it and um, uh, started applying it. I started doing homeschooling um, where like part of my classes were uh, run by the Foundation for Critical Thinking and uh, Dr. Elder and uh, Dr. Richard Paul were my main instructors Hmm. And so I just got a lot of experience uh, breaking things down using the elements of thought um, and then determining quality, you know, using the intellectual standards. And then, you know, obviously, like often at home, we were using the intellectual traits um, and then other like sort of supportive theory, uh, like the like the stuff that's in the emotional reasoning guide uh, to kind of talk about um, our daily experiences um, and our and our studies and our curiosities um, and. So that just kind of continued until I, I believe I started presenting, uh, when I was like 14. Mm. Um, and it was something like, uh, critical thinking through the lens of a high school student. Uh, and it was just sharing my experience, uh, with the foundation's ideas and how I was using them. And then, uh, kept going from there until like, yeah, at 18, I went on a, a trip to Mexico. I was there for like five or six weeks. And I mean, man, I was like, I was teaching 300 people in Spanish uh, at a time at 18, you know, uh, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, the basics of, you know, the elements of thought, the intellectual standards, the intellectual traits, you know, here's how you use them. Here's some examples, you know, asking and answering questions and getting a lot of help with my Spanish uh, (laughs) as as well. Uh, So that was a lot of fun. And um, but my so you know i was kind of primed with critical thinking in a way uh by by linda um but i eventually you know actually fairly quickly really started seeing the utility of these ideas okay. um and kind of the unavoidability like you you can't really have intellectual conversation without using these concepts like purpose question assumption information like concepts like you know, conclusions, point of view, implications, and consequences. I mean, you can't like that. It's part and parcel of the of academic language. Um, can you so, before,
0: before you go further? Because I know that you can just talk about this for our whole time, and I don't have to <laughs> have questions. So I'm just going to try to break it up a little bit. When you when you say that that stuff's all part and parcel of our thinking. One of the things that we often have talked about here on the show is the fact that most people don't really think very much about their thinking, and so maybe they're not very familiar. Maybe that wouldn't resonate with them. Maybe they say, well, I I don't know what is sort of always there in my thinking or what I can expect to find that's common to my thinking or, or stuff like that. I mean, what do you... Do you have a way of introducing this idea to people I mean is is this is if you were to share I mean you just spoke as if you still believe this to be true that this is in your thinking how would you share that with someone who hadn't heard about that before I mean that just seems when I go I, I just always feel like I'm telling people something they've never heard before like they always act like it's kind of brand new and I'm like what the hell are you talking about? I mean, how do you how do you make people aware of this stuff? What do you say to them? How do you how do you make the case that this that these kinds of ideas are important? Sure,
1: uh, I mean, obviously it depends on the person, you know, uh, it depends on their their language, their their patterns, like, and and specifically what we're talking about at the time. Uh, but you know, everyone is comfortable and often asks like. You know, oh, you say you believe that. Why do you believe that? Um, you know, or uh, especially if they disagree with someone, uh, some, they'll, they'll say, oh, well, you're only saying that because you're biased, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, uh, that's focusing on assumptions. Right. Uh, You know, even the concept of like fake news is, you know, is a a highlight of information and calling into question whether the data that you're providing is is accurate and uh, and a whole bunch of other of other uh, important standards. So, um, you know, I kind of try and hook people based on the conversation that we're having in the moment um, and get them to see. them to see various various points like that you can't get away from bias you know that that actually assumptions are are shortcuts that we need in order to build build forms of thinking that can actually produce things in the real world you know you can't you can't question everything all the time um so so yeah I don't know if I'm dodging the question, but just kind of like it—it—it it, it, it very much depends on the nature of like where I am in the interaction, and I don't usually try to like introduce a whole system of thought, you know, all at once. I'll just kind of uh, focus on on one aspect that they seem to be kind of in the area uh, on already.
0: Okay, so that, that that really does help answer my question that you kind of go in with, with the with the the piece that's at hand, and you just kind of deal with that do you ever find that people, I mean, because you've been, how long has it been since you got your PhD? Do you know? Uh, eight years and three months and <laughs> 22 days. Oh, yeah. So, you know. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> do you, um, do you, do you ever, find that these conversations for you become segues into discussing a larger system of thinking or are they just episodic you're talking about coffee you talk about thinking for a second you go back to coffee I mean do they ever blossom into larger conversations about thinking just impromptu sometimes um I'll admit
1: that uh in my younger days I was pretty um I guess zealous might be a word, um, just, know just <laughs> you know, just, just pretty excited about the ideas and um, like wanting to draw people in and show people, you know, and, and, and build things with people and come to conclusions and new, new ideas with folks. And, um, I think I became, uh, like, unfortunately disillusioned, uh, after my PhD, hmm. um, uh, and I could go down a whole a whole discussion about that, but I I really kind of took a step back and just started exploring the ideas more in my own mind. Um, so I'll I'll have a conversation with someone and I'll kind of throw some ideas out there and see how they see how they take the bait uh, and if they're interested um, and kind of follow them along. But if not, I can kind of have like explorations in my own head um, and kind of. Uh, kind of have like two conversations going at once, like the the one I'm having with the person and then kind of the one I'm having with myself. So I, I don't try and force people. I think people um, you know people people lives are complex and conversations are complex and moments are complex and you never know where someone is and like what's going on in their life and like what they're dealing with and why why they're why they're talking about a certain idea? Maybe they're holding on to it. Maybe they maybe they need this idea for some reason. And so, uh, I, I don't want to I don't want to force people into anything really
0: anymore. Um, yeah. Okay. No, that's cool. And so, um, yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, and we'll get back to that. But so so, you you did this thing um, in Mexico and. Then you came back and you started what? What happened after that in your critical thinking development? So
1: I went to um, I started, I went to undergrad. Uh, so I was a history major, but I focused on oral history. Um, I, I just took a random class just because it fit my schedule on oral history, and I really went down the rabbit hole. Like I I think there's a, there's an incredible methodology and approach to life. Uh, with like the philosophy and methodology of, of oral history. It's both, it's both a paradigm of study and also a a methodology. Um, And that really helped me later on in my, in my qualitative research, um, you know, that I did uh, um, in my master's and my, and my PhD. Uh, So, so yeah, I, and then, and then I, I yeah went to Oxford for a master's, uh, Cambridge for another master's, and then Cambridge for a PhD. And in all of that, um, well, I'll say at first I was focused, especially at Oxford, on pedagogy, like, like pretty specifically. So by that I mean what are good ways of teaching and learning, primarily for critical thinking, but but also more broadly. So I just studied. Pretty much every you know pedagogical system under the sun. If I don't know it by its name, I know it by another name. Is kind of how <laughs> I I feel. Um, and um, and uh, but as I studied when, when I was in Cambridge for my masters, I started studying. That was the first time I studied an actual attempt to improve a whole school system of critical thinking. And that's when I realized that the problems of pedagogy, I think are secondary to the problems of economics and politics when it comes to actually changing um, educational systems.
0: Okay, so what what does that mean?
1: Yeah, so what I mean by that is there are lots of great ways of teaching and learning. And I fully believe that if we chose any one of them and actually implemented them in educational systems, the results will be revolutionary. Hmm. Uh, That is, I don't think that the problem of how to improve educational systems lies primarily in the question of how exactly should teachers and learners structure their teaching and learning activities. Uh, I think there are better and worse ways of doing that, Uh, but I think there's a broad range of successful ways that we can structure teaching and learning. Hmm. Um, I think the main problem of why that's not happening is not because teachers don't wanna or because learners don't wanna or because they don't know what's best for them, uh, but rather because the economic and political incentives that drive their behavior are actually in most cases, not only not aligned with, but actually opposed to good learning outcomes.
0: Oh man, you're gonna to have to give an example of that.
1: Um, uh, standardized testing in K through 12. Okay. Uh, um, the, the, the fact that uh, teachers' um, ed- career advancement is primarily based on the extent to which their students do well on standardized tests that are multiple choice, uh, you know, very reductionist forms of learning that have absolutely nothing to do with emotional reasoning or or emotional skills that have very little whatsoever to do with the actual thinking required to do good work in that discipline. I mean, history is like something that's close to my heart, and so it's always a, an easy one to reach for. But like the fact that we ask people questions about like you know, when did this battle happen? Or, you know, what was the proximal cause of the First World War, you know, uh, the, the the murder of the Archduke Ferdinand? And it's like, okay, but like, like, what is it? Like, what does that mean? Right? Like, like, that has no historical value whatsoever. Sure. Right? That's, a trivia, that's a trivia piece exactly um and and then meanwhile you have like you know churchill uh like a a churchill quote which of course i'll botch but it's something like um when in the course of a of a clash between two great nations can you say that they are at war Mm. like that these events proceed in very complex ways um and and the entanglements happen and just understanding um like Churchill's World War II memoirs uh, are are full and 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 the stuff leading up to World War II are full of really deep thinking about moments and the moments that those that that and the the implications of those moments on the world stage and and Churchill will, and you know, who knows if he's right or wrong, but his thinking about, you know, uh, if if, when Germany had occupied the Rhineland with troops in clear violation of the treaty, if at that moment United Nations had sent troops in to forcibly evacuate those people, then that would have made Hitler appear to be weak and to not know what he's doing and to lose political power. And that event alone may have completely uh, made World War II not, not happen. Right now, who knows, but the point is, it's thinking, and it's thinking through these things that we really want people of history, students of history, to to engage in, uh, not you know uh, what on what date did Hitler invade Czechoslovakia or whatever. Um, so, anyway, I went on a little bit of a historical two tangent. I'm I, you know oh, I, I'm good, actually good. I'm rereading Churchill right now, so it's on the mind. <laughs> sure. um, but uh, but the point is, you know, if we want teachers to Have their students think along those lines, then we have to incentivize that behavior. You you can't ask teachers to do what's best for their students at the expense of their own career, which we all know that teachers are not paid well enough, especially in the K 12 system. You you can't ask teachers to do more work and get less pay uh, to do what's best for them and think that that's
0: going to result in a system of greatness. Okay. Okay. That's a powerful statement. What will result in a system of greatness, what even is that what's a system of greatness. What does that mean.
1: I mean it it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, uh, but I think one of the things I learned in my dissertation research in reviewing the literature is. When you look at the mission statements of universities, of K-12 systems, of, uh, of national systems, you see very, very common language. You see very aspirational statements about students' abilities to think through ideas, to, to use ideas that they learn in, in yeah. school in, in order to have better lives. In order to have better careers, in order to have better financial uh, situations, uh, sure. you you often more and more see even things about emotional reasoning, uh, about the ability to relate and communicate to other people, and to study and learn what makes them feel good and what empowers them in you know emotionally um, and uh, and uh, you know intellectually and spiritually even uh, often. Uh, so, uh, I think you know you can debate and and you can you can. You can hair split, but I think everyone uh, will agree that like those are general directions that educational systems should tend towards. Um, and and there's also broader and broader recognition that the systems as systems are not accomplishing that. Now there's greatness everywhere. There's great there's great professors. There's great teachers. There's great administrators. There's great uh, you know uh, people in the educational systems, uh, but as a system, it's not achieving those goals.
0: So is it something as simple as, I mean, you said earlier that we could take any of these educational systems very seriously and accomplish really good things, like any one of them would be a good, so is it, so, so it strikes me that based on that, it's not really a function of, of just swapping out, a pedagogical approach for a different pedagogical approach. It would take something deeper than that, I guess, to inculcate the kind of change you're suggesting. Can you you give us a a sense of what that looks like and what's needed in education then to, to do that?
1: Well, you have to read my dissertation for the full
0: answer. (laughs) It's available out there, folks. Look for Rush Cosgrove's dissertation. It's definitely easily available on the Internet. So
1: it is. um, And, uh, you know, and and reach out if you have questions, if you want to chat, you know, uh, happy to. Happy to riff. I mean, it's 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 complex. There are top-down problems and there are bottom-up problems, right? Um, the bottom-up ones are are uh, often easier to to describe. Um, what we know is that teachers teach the way that they learned. Sure. Um, and that teacher training programs, by and large, are unsuccessful, uh, largely because by the time teachers go into them, they have years and even decades of experience as learners. Mm. Um, Education, you know, and and even to step back broadly, everyone has years and even decades as learners. And so, you know, in contrast to, like, uh, probably... most like scientists of, of other stripes when I have conversations with just the general just just folks on the street so to speak um you know they'll often say oh well you know what and they, they find they, they find out I'm an educator oh you know what I think the problem with education is um you know and it's like okay cool like what you know what have you got and it's because they've had certain experiences so they sure. they They want to talk about solutions. Whereas, you know, if you're a nuclear physicist, I I don't believe that there, you know, someone in the party is going to go, well, you know what I think the problem with nuclear physics is, (laughs) you know,
0: fun conversation. (laughs) So
1: (laughs) so it's good on the one hand, because folks have experience that they want to share, but it's also uh, makes it a little bit more difficult because people want to want to give you their answer rather than maybe listen to, you know, your your expertise, having having studied it at, uh, explicitly in a, in a number of ways. Uh, but in any case, um, so teachers come preloaded, learners come preloaded with experiences, right? Um, so, uh, so those are some of the problems. And then, as I mentioned before, from the top down, um, you know, every system has incentives for how you're getting a promotion or a raise. And by and large, those systems are based on um uh you know standardized forms of of uh of reporting and recording uh that in general are not actually in line with uh with student learning outcomes. In the K-12 system, it tends to be standardized, you know, high stake standardized testing. In the university systems, uh, you know, beyond, like, two-year community colleges and such. In universities, it tends to be, like, publishing uh, and other, other forms of, like, academic research or presentation. Um, or, like, if you're looking at, like, even beyond that, like, university ranking systems, those tend to be based on things like student-teacher ratio and, uh, you know, the the academic uh, quality of your staff, which again is determined by research and publication. Uh, so there's all sorts of gaming. You know, there's gaming by universities to get higher rankings. There's gaming by professors to get higher uh, research publications. There's gaming by students to get higher grades within the frameworks that teachers devise. And so it's all kind of misaligned with actual learning. And until we solve those incentive. Uh, Issues. Mm. That there's always going to be there's always going to be some significant gap, some kind of a
0: mismatch in there. In the, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, on
1: the on the learning level, you can't ask students to learn historical thinking and then judge them on a multiple choice test, uh right? And then and then, but then, why are you judging them on the multiple choice test? Because you're required to teach 800 people in a in a semester and you don't have time to read 800 essays every four weeks and give people individualized feedback. Right. Uh, So, like, again, all of the systems all the way through are kind of driving more toward um, memorization and regurgitation
0: rather than actual critical thinking. Okay, we are talking with Dr. Rush Cosgrove. He's an old friend of mine from critical thinking uh, environments near and far. And he has joined us today uh, to share his insights. You're listening to Critical Thinking for Everyone on 106.5 FM, WFMPLP. This is Forward Radio. It's Social Justice Radio out of Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, you might be watching us too, it's quite possible on Facebook. Uh, and so you should feel free to reach out to Rush um, if you'd like to. What's the best way for people to get a hold of you, Rush? Um, boy, I guess just uh, on email rush.cosgrove at gmail.com. Okay, very good. So we were speaking um, up until now, we've been talking about your education and critical thinking and your formal education. We've, um, we've sort of gotten through a little bit of your um, time in graduate school. Since graduate school, I know you've changed your approach when it comes to professional education. So you're doing some different work than you had been doing prior to your graduate work. So can can you update us on what you're doing? And also, can you can you tell us if this new work has anything to do with critical thinking? Are you still involved with critical thinking, um, activities and, and, and development and stuff?
1: Uh, totally. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's all of a piece, you know, um, my heart is in K-12 and university education. Um, I, I really think that like where I want to contribute in my life is toward improving systems of education, mm-hmm. uh, as I, as we've been talking about, um, I, have temporarily left those spaces okay. um, primarily because of the work that I did in my master's and PhD, where I, I, I know I've been talking about the organizational problems. You know, I just realized, like in the K-12 system, for example, there's no short-term world where those incentives change. Hmm. Uh, there, there, there's no short-term world where either standardized testings, high-stakes standardized testing, um, is is eliminated or that it becomes of a type that would actually facilitate the kind of critical thinking and emotional reasoning that, that we've been talking about. Oh it's, man, really? Like there's nothing? I, I that's my reading of it. Um, huh. and, and I, I think that's primarily because of the because of the issue of time. And of the desire of these systems to actually create a hierarchy of learning, uh, learning out learner, I should say learner outcomes. Uh, so that is um, universities need a way to sort out high school students into the students they want and the students they don't want, and yeah. that means ranking them, and yeah. that means them all being, uh, them all working against the same metric. And that means high-stakes standardized testing, and that means, in, you know, in these in national uh, networks, you have literally tens of millions of people who need to go through these systems, and that means you need a way of evaluating tens of millions of people in quick and objective ways, yeah. and that means the reduction of metrics into ones that the metric makers themselves argue. Are not really appropriate forms of judging the quality of the learner. But, Mm. and here's the big caveat they're the best that we have right now. Sure. Given the limitations.
0: Yeah. And those limitations are significant, as you mentioned, because, you know, probably again, I I guess you'd agree, the best way to um, evaluate some of the stuff would be through long form, you know, writing and reading those essays and giving feedback on those essays. And, you know, who's got the time? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And when it comes to emotional development and egocentric uh, growth, um, it's often difficult. I mean, like the, the, best, the, the best way of judging those things is through actual activities that engage the ego. And that means, that means stakes and that means value and loss. So this can be done, for example, in the K twelve environment um, because students interact with each other, you know, at recess on the playground, et cetera, and they get in fights and they have they have disagreements. And those can be moments where you you see the ego engage, mm. right? Where you see uh, people uh, act in ways that are, are emotional and sometimes irrational, and mm. those could be moments of reflection and and improvement. Um, it becomes very difficult in a university environment to recreate those, you know, people try by like, say, like having like, you know, debates in class and you split everyone in half, or you force people to, uh, to take the point of view of the other side, but it's always very dry, right? It's always like, there's always like students can engage and can become like involved in those moments, mm-hmm. but if they don't take a leap of faith, they can totally opt out. They don't have to engage their true beliefs or, or ideas in those moments. So, uh, so-, so I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying that the change that is needed to, to make these, uh, these evaluative forms happen is easy, uh, but until it does, we're, we're, I mean, human behavior will always go toward reward incentives and punishment incentives. That's incentives. That's, that's the
0: nature of psychology and sociology. So I appreciate all that. You've used this term at least a half dozen times since we've been on here. And no one else who talks about critical thinking on this show ever talks about this. And so I wanna ask you, we're on here talking about critical thinking, you have master's degree, PhD in critical thinking, and you're sitting here talking to me about emotions. I wanna know why despite all of my efforts to lead you into this more analytic space of vocabulary stuff, the stuff that, you know, is more, maybe more beginning fair, that more of our uh, listeners would be used to us talking about, which we mentioned four elements, standards, traits, Um, biases, which we tend to characterize here as non-rational as opposed to saying emotional. I notice you've been linking it more explicitly um, you know, in a positive way, I guess, toward emotion. I just wonder, what's emotion got to do with critical thinking? Isn't it maybe an enemy of critical thinking, or is that is that the wrong way to think about
1: it? I think that's the wrong way of thinking about it. Okay, Completely. help us. Help us. Uh, humans are emotional beings. Um, one thing that R- Richard Paul once said to me was. I don't believe any idea exists except in connection with other ideas. Okay. And so just as much as there is truth to humans being analytical and rational, critical thinkers, there is equal truth to humans being emotional and passionate and often irrational beings. And so to, to deny that side, to think of it as an enemy, to think of it as an object, to, to, to discount the deep intelligence that exists in the subconscious um, is to blind ourselves to the deep interaction that happens between the analytical and the emotional
0: sides of ourselves. Okay, so let me ask you about that. That's, that's a fine statement. What do you think about the idea that all ideas might be connected? Fine. They're all this network. But some ideas are wrong. Like we're connected to the bad ideas as well as the good ideas. And we're connected to weak interpretations as well as strong ones. And maybe when it comes to emotions, for example, since we don't do thinking with those, since there's some other process there, maybe they ought to be considered as a lesser partner in this, as opposed to the much stronger partner that you're suggesting within our thinking and our development. What do you think about that?
1: I think, I think anytime you denigrate any form of
0: intelligence, you're, you're losing out. Do you, but you keep calling emotions intelligence. Isn't that a misnomer, since they don't think, or is that am I missing? Am I misunderstanding that, or do they think? I don't know. I mean, what do you what do you think about that? What do what do you mean by intelligence there?
1: Sure. Um, well, let's. So I got a couple of examples. Let, let's just talk about athletic intelligence. Um, uh, so uh, people who study athletic performance. Uh, often talk about the difference between like practice mind and performance mind. Um, And that when you are, when you are performing, you are yes, using all of the principles and ideas and behaviors and processes and forms that you, that you practice in, but you, you, you rise above that and you become a kind of improvisational reactionary creature that is able to respond and and create new things on top of those things in the moment that sure. your rational analytical brain could never actually like in that moment come to uh, you know in basketball i play basketball you know you're you're moving, and you you can just feel the defender kind of be off balance, and a gap open up, and you and you shoot through that gap. Um, you don't think about that; your body just responds to that before it happens. So that's that's not exactly emotional, uh, but it's a form of intelligence that I think is very clear, um, and uh, and that a lot of people um, a lot of people are uh, are highly aware of and talking about. Uh, but let's get into the teaching space for a moment. Um, you you prompted this, and I, I love the way that you prompted this question uh, by by talking about like some ideas are wrong. Okay, so let's talk about a wrong idea that that we've talked about in this uh, in this interview. Um, okay. It is wrong to judge students of history by multiple choice tests. Okay. It is wrong. Okay. Why do brilliant passionate caring professors and teachers do this why do they do it easier to grade easier to grade and 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 we could say that is we could also say that is wrong okay <laughs> sure yeah. we could right uh so so then why why is why are they why are they what is the what is the thing is, is it our our Are teachers actually like thinking to themselves, well, uh, you know, I know this is, I know this is wrong. uh, And, or, or, you know, yeah, are they, what are they doing? And and I think when you get down to it, you're going to get to emotional, emotional answers. You're going to get to answers like, I don't have the energy to do this. I don't have the time to do this. If I do, if I, if I, if I do this, I won't be able to publish. I won't get professional uh, advancement, my life will not be fulfilled because I will always be poor and I will not have the money I need to build a family or like, or travel or whatever you want to do. I
0: think those are primarily emotional reasons. Okay. But those could be like someone, like when I'm hearing you, I'm thinking, oh, he's giving reasons. So it's rational, but you're saying that same approach can be interpreted as more emotional in response than rational.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think when you get down to it, the the actual thing that's driving all of those rational forms of thought is, I wanna live a fulfilled life. I wanna travel, I wanna have a family. You know, uh, I I wanna feel good about my place in the social hierarchy. Um, You know, those are emotional needs. If we were robots, If we literally had no feelings, uh, we wouldn't have those kinds of concerns. Mm. Okay. We have, we have emotional and physical needs, uh, and, and desires. And, and those are largely, I I would say, driving our, our thinking. We use thinking in order to, in order to fulfill those, those things, Mm. um, so it, it's, it's not that either one of these things is better or worse or more intelligent or less intelligent or more capable or less capable.
0: It's that they interact. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, but, but let, me just cut, let me just jump in for a second. So <clears throat> I'm going to use my emotions to help me. I don't know what I'm going to do with them. I'm going to not use my thinking. I'm gonna try to get guidance from my emotions. When I try to do that, I often find myself thinking about the emotions. And that's where the guidance sort of springs from. And so in that way, I guess I would wanna say, that the emotions are still like the way that I use them maybe to accomplish things or to achieve goals or to set goals still strikes me as as highly intellectual like that's more it strikes me that that's more content than process what do you say to that Well, I'm not sure I followed the the last part of what you're saying, but... um, Emotions strike me as more of a content thing that I would analyze the same way I would analyze anything else, as opposed to emotional guidance being a different process from my intellectual one. Is that clearer?
1: Yeah, okay. I think I see where you're going. Um, One of the different things... In terms of content um, with emotions, is um, it's very hard to quantify. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you think about quantifying, for example, um, the 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 feeling of freedom and of the ability to do what one wants versus uh, making more money that will, in the future, allow you to do more of what you want you know um it's difficult I mean, human beings all the time we we come to these these moments we don't know how to make a decision like that, mm-hmm. And it's largely because you can't just put it on a ledger and say, "Well, here are the positives and here are the negatives, and there are more positives than negatives. Uh, okay. so let's do that. But then one of the negatives is a huge negative. you know it's outsized right, uh, right. And so even though there are only three negatives and there are five positives, that one negative is like a it's like a no go, right? right? right, right yeah, um, so I, I think. It's not the same as like other
0: other forms of content in in that way. Okay. Okay. So when I've when so so I regularly am irritated with the phrase on this show, I'm regularly irritated with the phrase emotional intelligence. Because I think uh-huh. there's I think there's conflating going on uh-huh. in a lot of the ways this is described. You would say that I should give that. Uh, A different look yeah absolutely I mean
1: emotions just like analysis can go wrong sure easily more easily almost it seems to me I don't know have you have you have you read opinion papers lately (laughs) 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 I mean go and look at the op-ed section of of any major newspaper uh and you will find uh reasoning that maybe on the face of it
0: kind of connects but when you really look at it it's it's poor um yeah, and maybe they started maybe they started that way i'm thinking about maybe in the best sense you know well but but then you have to put emotional
1: intelligence in the best sense as well sure you can't you can't compare the best sense of analytical thinking
0: with all of the senses of emotional reasoning Well, I would, but I I mean, the problem is I just don't really know how, because it strikes me as like apples and pomegranates. Mm. Hmm.
1: Well, anyway, um, yeah, you can't, they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be like, they're they're, they're just different. You know, emotions exist literally, literally on a qualitatively different plane of existence sure yeah yeah right they're a different thing than thoughts um right uh, but it's also uh, a undeniable fact that they cannot be disentangled there is no there is no creature on earth that thinks and doesn't feel Hmm. Uh, and i don't think that there's a creature on earth that feels and and doesn't think now we could debate we could debate, we could debate, you know, we could debate on that, sure. uh, but it's something I've, it's something I've thought about a lot. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I really feel that, um, that the two go, go hand in hand, at least on earth. Okay. Um, uh,
0: so that's a powerful fact. Wouldn't you need a neuro structure? I'm just thinking, just based on your assertion, I'm just thinking of the humble paramecium, right? So it's definitely going to move around based on stimuli of some kind, but I don't think anybody thinks it has like a neural structure that would allow it to think per se, like not not reason, but it might very well, I don't know, want to leave some situation. I don't know if that's fear, but maybe a sense of, I gotta go, whatever that is. Maybe that's not. I would be willing to say the paramecium is operating off of feeling without thinking. But is that like? Is that just too much in the weeds?
1: I well, I think it's. I think it's beyond. It's certainly beyond my uh, knowledge of of science. Well, me too. Uh,
0: I just. I was just throwing it out there. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um. I mean, my kind of general thinking on it is. Uh, I think there's a difference between uh, emotions and reactions. Oh, sure. Okay. All right. So
0: maybe the, maybe the paramecium has, has, doesn't have that either. I, I, I
1: think until you have a central nervous system, um, you, you really, you,
0: you don't have, you don't have Im- emotions. Um, okay. so, so that's probably me conflating something like emotions and feelings. That's probably me just.
1: Yeah. I mean, a, you know, a human example, uh, you know, like uh, you can be absolutely uh, dead by every sense, but you tap on the patella tendon and, and your foot kicks. You know, that's <laughs> right. That that's a reaction. Uh, that That's not an emotion. Okay. You didn't kick because you hurt. You know, you kicked because that's how the biomechanical structure works.
0: I got you. Okay. All right. That's fair. That's a fair distinction. I, I appreciate just sort of getting in the weeds with this, with me on this. I think this is an important uh, topic for all of us who are thinking about critical thinking to, to maybe contemplate.
1: Yeah. I, and it's, it's, I don't know, it's a rabbit hole I could go down. It's something I've thought about a lot, but I mean, you know, if you take a look at cats and dogs, like they're, they're around us all the time. Like they're certainly thinking and they're certainly feeling.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. You know. Well, look, so we're going to run out of time. These conversations can certainly um, go on when we're talking, and I'm glad that we've been able to make a little time. Can you just give us a little information about what you're doing today? So you're in the education space, but you're not teaching per se the way you were before. What is it that you're doing and and how does that um, fulfill, you know, like scratch your critical thinking itch or whatever? Sure. Yeah, I'm I'm building various educational
1: products, um, mostly in the uh, we would call the tertiary uh, education space. Uh, so. Uh, so tertiary education. Uh, so there's primary, right? K through uh, K through eight. Uh, yeah, K through eight. There's secondary, which is nine through twelve, high school, right? And then there's uh, tertiary education, which includes like university and college, but also includes like uh, technical training, job uh, job training, career career work. Uh, so uh, that's kind of the the general like uh, slice of the pie. Um, and uh, so I'm mostly working with. Uh, either uh, individuals who want to get a, get a different career or, uh, or uh, uh, corporations or or, uh, large organizations that want to upskill their, their workforce Hmm, Um, and building mostly in the technical like data science, data analytics and web development uh, space. And um, uh, how it, how it scratches my itch is because, you know, these programs always start with, well, we want to teach these technical skills. We want to teach SQL. We want to teach Python. We want to teach JavaScript. We want to teach, you know, uh, whatever it is. And um, and so here's what this skill is. And now let's have you use it. Uh, but when you get down to it, it's always about understanding uh, and thinking rather than like learning some skill and memorizing it and and applying it. Uh, is
0: that the way that the corporate world looks at it, or is that your take on it? Like, does the corporate world say, "Ah, these these product innovations are really just thinking problems," or do they, or do they see it in a in a more direct or shallower way?
1: Uh, some, some the one, some the other. Uh, but once you build products and you have certain outcomes, you, you can always show that. For example the students who are doing well in the course are the ones who know how to ask questions you know they're the ones who know how to look at the resources that they have on offer and actually take advantage of them Mm -hmm. Uh, you know when it comes to coding they're the ones who can actually read an error message and debug it and do some google searching and find someone who's thought about that answer and then apply it to their own to their own code um so uh, so that always like is my entree into like right these people know how to learn, and the ones who struggle are the ones who aren't very good at learning how they don't know how to learn uh they don't know how to in- engage their own uh their own problem solving uh you know processes so
0: so that's kind of the entree mm-hmm. so you work with clients, i guess mm-hmm. What do you do when you encounter someone who has this particular problem that you just described? How do you, how do you shift to a more productive intellectual space with them? Or, or do you just try to work with them where you find them in that shallower space? Yeah, I mean, you always you always try and educate
1: folks. Some people don't wanna spend the time and effort it takes to, to build that, um, but uh, many do. And at that point, it's you know uh, I often use educational research uh, to show, uh, for example, formative assessment is something that a lot of research has been done on as, as having a lot of impact. And what formative assessment really boils down to is giving you know teachers and students talking to each other about how students are thinking about their learning and their pro- and the, the products of their learning uh, and teachers guiding students to think about the products of their learning more like the teachers do than like the students initially do. Uh, And so that's basically using intellectual standards uh, to judge
0: the quality of your work. Hmm. You know, one of the things back when you and I were spending a lot of time thinking about critical thinking theory, one of the things um, that came up a lot from my point of view was the idea that, um, you know maybe there are a lot of intellectual standards out there that in particular when you get into different disciplines there may be a lot of discipline specific standards that maybe you wouldn't include in a more general list have you come across any of those that you could say ah for this this is definitely a standard you'd want to use for this kind of thinking that you wouldn't you wouldn't think of for everything can you can you come up with anything like that like something that's a discipline specific standard Sure. I mean, first of all, I, I've more often been impressed
1: by how often discipline-specific standards either map directly or are some uh, slight variation on the general intellectual standards that the the Foundation for Critical Thinking has uh, has provided. Oh wow! Because we
0: um, only provide about ten or so.
1: Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, even like, you know, clarity, you would think like, how does clarity apply to writing code? Uh, Well, you need to be able to read code. And in fact, most of what coding is, is reading code. Uh, it's, you know, everyone thinks of like a hacker, like a, a coder is like, just like typing things out. But mostly what they're doing is looking at a bunch of code in a bunch of different files, finding problems, kind of seeing that, okay, these things aren't quite connecting and then going and finding other code and reading a bunch of other code that solved a similar problem. And then writing very small lines of code to actually solve the problem. Um, so. so Clarity uh, of writing, you know, precision of naming things. I can't tell you how many issues come up with slight misnaming between variables, right? So, like, those are some examples where you wouldn't think that this would apply, um, but it it really does. Okay,
0: okay. Well, I think that was easier than I thought it was going to be. If you were gonna, if you were gonna leave our listeners here with a critical thinking nugget. From a, an eminent critical thinking, uh, you know, participant and developer such as yourself, what can you what can you offer the people? I would say you are a
1: critical thinker. I would say it's it's in your nature to be a critical thinker. Anybody and everyone, everyone. Um, This is not something that is out of your reach. It's not something that is reserved for the elite. Um, This is a a daily, uh, down-to-earth, emotional experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And the extent to which you want to improve as a critical thinker I think is directly tied to the extent to which your needs are not being met and you want to better meet those needs in whatever way that means to you. Um, And so the tools that the foundation provides and that other other groups provide on this, and there are a ton of uh, a ton of great ideas out there about how to improve our thinking. um, Those are there for you to consider, to try to apply, to see the results. To try again, to see those results, and and to just continue to move and and improve your and improve your life again in whatever way that means to you, whether it's about the stuff you do for fun, whether it's about your relationships with your friends and family, whether it's about your professional life, whether it's you know about your uh, hobbies and pursuits, whatever it is, uh, whatever you want to get better at, if you want to get better at that, you are unavoidably doing critical thinking. Now, whether you're doing it well or whether you're doing it poorly or, or the extent to which you're doing it well or the extent to which you're doing it poorly, that's a different question. Uh, but critical thinking really is for everyone
0: and uh, and you can absolutely achieve it. Well, I don't know any better way to end the show. Ladies and gentlemen, critical thinking impresario, Dr. Rush Carsgrove here to help us maybe upgrade our stylistics just a bit really appreciate you making the time for this brother it's been a lot of fun uh, i hope i hope folks get something out of this i think they will i hope you'll uh, consider coming back and joining us again when patty can anytime my friend